Hello, I'm Richard Schickel. I'm a film critic and historian and biographer of Clint Eastwood. I will be doing the audio commentary for Dirty Harry, which begins conventionally enough with a shot of the tribute to fallen police officers in San Francisco with a badge superimposed on them. I think the idea is to establish this as a kind of a conventional cop thriller. But it cuts immediately over to Scorpio. his first victim. In this sequence, uh, as you're about to see, Don Siegel, the director, establishes a kind of visual premise that will continue throughout the film. Film is very much in wide shots and long shots. It uh, is very sparing with close-ups. And I think that's an obviously conscious choice on, on Don Siegel's part. And, you know, if it does get in close, it gets in with this kind of masking device uh, wherever, uh, you know, a gun is being aimed at an innocent victim. The film was, of course, in its day uh, when it was released, very controversial largely because of the attitude of this man, Dirty Harry Callahan, played by Clint Eastwood, who is not particularly careful about the rights of criminals and uh, is particularly caring about uh, the rights of victims. It was, at the moment it was released, post-60s, quite a uh, controversial film because in the 60s there had been a kind of shift in public attitudes about criminals and about law enforcement. There had been the Miranda decisions which insisted on the reading of rights to uh, suspected criminals and this movie quite directly takes up that issue. It became, upon its release, particularly in the reviewing of Pauline Kael, an extremely controversial film. Perhaps uh, a word here about Lalo Schifrin's score. I suspect that uh, Schifrin and the kind of music he wrote were Clint's idea. That is to say, he loved, as we know, jazz. He loved the kind of modern jazz sounds that Schifrin produced. And Schifrin did other films with him. And this is a particularly effective jazz score. The film is the fourth collaboration between Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel. Uh, They would do one more film thereafter together, uh, Escape from Alcatraz, also set in San Francisco. Siegel was a veteran Hollywood director who made his first feature film at Warner Brothers in 1947 and had, in the years thereafter, 
uh, made a plethora of fairly low-budget films, many of which are really very good. Most notably, I suppose, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I also did what I think is Elvis Presley's best film, Flaming Star, a Western. He was a specialist in action, Westerns, and cop dramas in particular. He and Eastwood struck up uh, an almost mentoring friendship. Clint liked his style, which was very direct, very simple and straightforward. Don was a man who liked to get it on as quickly as he could, as efficiently as he could, without a lot of talk, a lot of nonsense. Clint always said that decisiveness was a significant factor in his relationship with uh, Don. I mean, he admired the fact that Don always knew what he wanted and was quick to understand when he had it. Don had a kind of a disconcerting habit of being kind of underneath or beside the camera. And he'd say, roll him, and then he would cross his fingers, which, you know, meant that he was hoping Clint would not blow his lines or do something untoward. And, and you know, it amused Clint at the same time, sometimes shook him up a bit. Jesus. In the city of San Francisco, I will enjoy killing one person every day until you pay me $100,000. If you agree, say so tomorrow morning in personal column San Francisco Chronicle, and I will set up meeting. If I do not hear from you, it will be my next pleasure to kill a Catholic priest or a Scorpio. What goes on in their minds? Books. Where the hell is he expecting to find $100,000? The actors in this scene, the mayor, detective chief and the police chief are, uh, you know, the kind, again, the kind of actors that Clint liked uh, and Don liked. And uh, they all of them, all the people in these, in this particular scene, would work for Clint in subsequent movies. This is John Vernon, police chief John Larch. Uh, Harry Gardino is the top detective, and that is, of course, Mr. Eastwood. All right, let's have it. Have what? The report. What have you been doing? Oh, well, for the past three quarters of an hour, I've been sitting on my ass in your outer office, looking on you. That line uh, sort of sets the tone that Harry is going to pursue through the rest of this movie. Won't you sit down, Inspector Callahan? He is in the context of the movie, a, a rebel, a rebel against the bureaucracy that hinders his law enforcement activities, slows him down. And yet, of course, there's only one thing on God's good green earth that Harry Callahan can do, that's to be a cop. So he is caught between his unacknowledged need to be Inspector Callahan and the fact that he is in a constant state of impatience with the bureaucracy that hedges him around, that prevents him, at least in theory, from taking direct action against malefactors. Seven lines and blue is right hand twist. Oh, sir. 
The uh, malefactor in this case is, of course, a psychopath. At this era, I think, in general, in America, we were becoming more aware of the psychopathic personality uh, as it intruded on our lives. Serial killers were very much in the news at that time. Ted Bundy, for example, and others. So it was, I'm not saying it introduced the notion of the uh, malignant and motivelessly malign psycho, but it was a huge step forward in bringing that type of character to our consciousness. Okay. I agree with the chief. We'll do it this way, all right? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Come on, Callahan, let's go. Callahan. Sir. I don't want any more trouble like you had last year in the Fillmore district. Understand? That's my policy. Yeah, well, when the adult male is chasing a female uh, with intent to commit rape, I shoot the bastard. That's my policy. Intent? How did you establish that? Well, a naked man is chasing a woman through an alley with a butcher knife and a hard line. I figure he isn't out collecting for the Red Cross. I think he's got a point. The sequence we're about to uh, uh, enjoy, and I use that word advisedly, is a crime of a much more conventional kind that the ever alert Harry, who is a great cop, observes uh, as a possibility as he goes for his lonely and ridiculous hot dog. Harry tends to eat hot dogs at this stand uh, for both lunch and dinner. You know, it's all part of being Harry, you know, the, the terrible suit off the, off the peg at a not very fancy store, the indifference to high cuisine, shall we say. He really has no life beyond being a cop. Usual? Oh, the usual lunch, the usual dinner. Well, what difference does it make? What he is perceived here is, of course, a bank robbery in progress. Uh, very quietly, uh, you know, there's no guns going off, no alarms at this point being sounded. It's just, you know, an alert cop noticing that there's a car with its engine running and a driver at the ready outside of a bank. Now, Harry just soon stay out of this, have his hot dog, and let the uh, harness bulls take care of it. Ah, nuts. Not going to get to finish that hot dog at all. Every star 
who wants to be or comes to be a superstar needs a sequence like this, one that brings his screen personality into high relief. What's about to take place here uh, is some wonderful acting and some brilliant screenwriting that establishes Clint now and forever as a particular kind of screen hero. Taciturn, job-oriented, a man who will take no nonsense from anybody, but isn't going to make a very big deal out of it. I mean, everything he does in this film and subsequent films is very low-key, very soft-spoken, almost casual, something almost casual in the way he walks across the street to confront Albert Popwell playing uh, the uh, one of the uh, bank robbers. I love the smile on Punk. There's a kind of understanding between the two of them. At least at this level, there's no understanding when we're dealing with Scorpio. Hey. That's to know. There is, I think, a sense in, <laughs> in Clint uh, and Dirty Harry that um, there are kind of brothers under the skin in the underworld. This scene is uh, kind of what we have in the way of backstory for Dirty Harry. The uh, doctor attending him is uh, someone he grew up in the same neighborhood with. He's an old friend, and we understand that Harry is, you know, a working stiff, out of the working class and all that. And also, of course, a frugal man. He's not about to have his new pants cut up by this guy. He's uh, <laughs> uh, going to make sure that they uh, are preserved to get baggy in the knees in future activities. Again, I want to stress the notion that this is not a film of close-ups. And it's also, as it develops, a much darker film than we've seen it being at this point. 
It's been pretty much taking place in daylight at this point. As it develops, you will see a great deal more. Night shooting, very dark. Um, cinematographer on this film, as he would be for a number of Clint's other films, as Bruce Surtees, son of the legendary Robert Surtees, who won three Oscars for his cinematography. Surtees was kind of one of those princes of darkness. Um, Gordon Willis was another who came to the fore in American films in this period, in the 60s and 70s. you made yesterday. The chief was pleased. He was, huh? Yeah, he really was. He wanted me to tell you well done. I'll tell you how deeply moved I am. Okay, nice, typical, cynical, dirty, hairy comment there. A lot of those in this movie, which is extremely well written. Hey, Harry, check communication, something from Chicago. This is a scene that introduces him to his new, very youthful, and Hispanic partner all of which are alleged around the department to be no-nos as far as Harry is concerned. Uh, the young officer is played by Rennie Santoni, who was, like the other actors in this picture, a good, solid, but not particularly famous actor of the time. Uh, I think he'd also been a television writer. What do you mean? You know what happens to the guys that I've worked with. Dietrich's still in the hospital with a bullet in his gut, and Fanducci's dead. This is, uh, again, a little tiny tad of backstory here. Harry tends to plunge into things, and people who plunge in a step or two behind him or next to him often uh, get caught in the crossfire. But what can he do? If you see the Georgia, send him in here. You from around here? Yeah, but I went to school, San Jose State. Like wall? Uh, no, I boxed. Light heavy. Uh, just what I needed, a college boy. You haven't found one thing? He doesn't like college boys. He doesn't like well-spoken guys. I don't think he even likes guys who are as fit as uh, Santoni is. Uh, his more typical partner is a little bit overweight, overage, and slower on the uptake. such a guy as, uh, as this character, who is, in fact, Robert Mitchum's brother, John Mitchum. There is one question, Inspector Callahan. What do they call you, Dirty Harry? Well, that's one thing about our Harry. Doesn't play any favorites. Harry hates everybody. Limeys, Nicks, Hebes, Fat Dagos, Niggers, Honkies, Chinks, you name it. Well, how's he feel about Mexicans? Ask him. Especially Spicks. Belied by the fact, of course, that he gives that wink there. Uh, we are never to understand that Dirty Harry is quite 
what his legend uh, would have him to be. I think it's probably worth pausing uh, in this scene where a new victim for Scorpio is being chosen quite by chance. To mention that this film uh, first came to Clint Eastwood's attention when he was working at Universal. It had been apparently rejected by Paul Newman, shown to Clint, he said he liked it, then moved on to doing other projects in the way of things in Hollywood. The, the script, uh, which was uh, by Harry Julian Fink and his wife Rita, or R.M. Fink, uh, drifted over to Warner Brothers. At one point, uh, Steve McQueen was briefly interested in it. Frank Sinatra was virtually signed to do it, then injured his hand and couldn't do it. Uh, Warner's was in the midst of a new regime. It had just been bought by Steve Ross and his Kinney Corporation, and uh, they had written down millions of dollars in other products. They were desperate for new films. They offered it to Clint. Uh, he was busy with his first directorial assignment, play Misty for me, couldn't do it. Then it came around one more time, and by this time, Warner's had a whole bunch of scripts on it because there had been production rewrites for Sinatra, certainly, probably for Steve McQueen and others. And as Clint put it, they sent over a whole mess of scripts. And uh, the only one he liked was the original script, uh, the one by the husband and wife team, the Finks. He uh, enlisted uh, Don Siegel uh, and enlisted Dean Reisner, uh, a scriptwriter who would do other scripts and a good deal of polishing for Clint through the years to spend seven or eight weeks working, reworking the Fink script to make it more like a Clint Eastwood script or a Don Siegel script for that matter. And that worked out well, and uh, so it went into production, even though Eastwood had not yet made what would become his lifelong commitment to Warner Brothers. This was a, a one-off deal until it worked out nicely for him, and, um, you know, he decided to stay on at the studio as he has ever since. Now here, at least, conventional police work uh, is doing its job. The uh, helicopter patrols that they've set up have brought Scorpio to the attention of the passing helicopter. And uh, as happens frequently in this movie, they come oh so close to getting Scorpio through their usual methods. Scorpio, by the way, is played by a, a young actor named Andy Robinson, who was uh, discovered in a kind of off-Broadway production of an adaptation of a Dostoevsky novel. And he had, as you will see, he's an awfully nice fellow, but uh, he had a, a quality about him, a kind of nutsy quality that was perfect for this part. He is now... Uh, 
a teacher of acting at USC and still works occasionally in small theaters around Los Angeles. This is the first big kind of night sequence in the movie. I mentioned before the severe darkness of this film. You know, we are in the lighting of this sequence, uh, you know, pretty darn close to not being able to quite see everything that's going on in the frame. One of Clint's critics said it sometimes uh, seemed to her that she, he hadn't paid his Con Edison bill. Uh, but he likes dark films, and he likes darkness in his movies, and uh, it is a stylistic tick that he certainly was encouraged in by Siegel in this film. This sequence, I think, together with the bank robbery sequence, and together with another sequence that will be coming up very shortly, I think is intended to establish the notion that a policeman's lot is never a happy one. It's full of grubby activity, it's full of frustration, it's full of bad hours and dangerous settings. Now, here we're actually heading into a kind of comic place because, uh, you know, hey, face it, Clint is at this moment kind of a peeping Tom. And it is left ambiguous as to whether he is interested in what he's peeping at or is still thinking that possibly uh, he'll find some, <laughs> some more profoundly criminal activity. I mean, he is going to have to be rescued by his young partner. A good thing he comes along, uh, gun out and uh, ready to talk these guys out of doing severe bodily harm to Harry Callahan. Let him go. Let him go. You heard me. You're assaulting a police officer. A police officer? Why, he was standing on that garbage can peeking in on Hot Mary and her boyfriend. Get out of here. How about the man with the suitcase? It's wrong number. There's a slight misunderstanding about to come up here because Chico is uh, 
got a new idea of why Dirty Harry might be called Dirty. That's going to get straightened out and explained in the very next sequence, which is perhaps not an important sequence in terms of the overall development of the movie, but is an important sequence in the overall development of Clint Eastwood. This is Inspector 71. Right. California Hall at Turk Street. 10-4, we're on our way. What we have here is two things. The first is, and most important, I think, is that it is the first sequence that Clint Eastwood ever directed in a feature film, or for that matter, in any film outside of home movies, I suppose. It's a sequence that really Siegel couldn't do. First of all, he was down with the flu the night they shot this. And second of all, um, as you'll see when the sequence develops, there's really no place for a director in the sequence. I mean, Clint has to go up on this hoist, and uh, there's no place for him there. And where would uh, Don or another director be elsewhere in the scene? So... Clint undertook to direct himself and the other actor in the sequence. It's a terrific little sequence because, you know, this is Dirty Harry at his most insinuating, you know. Oh, he's not going to try to rescue the jumper. He just wants to make sure he doesn't have a lot of messy paperwork to do uh, after, the, after the jump has succeeded. He just doesn't want to, uh, you know, get all messed up in this, uh, to him, absurd business. Interesting to point out here that uh, on the production schedule, this sequence was down for six shooting days or nights. Clint had seen on the news, uh, you know, simple routine local news coverage of a similar event, and had been very taken with it, struck by it. He said, well, if they can do it in the way that they do, with very simple lighting, very simple equipment, why can't we do that in a film? It's the same values, it's the same situation. And so he just kind of went ahead and did it in his kind of bang-on way. Always happens with you guys, you know? Last minute, you always want to grab onto somebody, take somebody with you. It was a long night. They didn't finish until something like 3.30 in the morning. Clint was terribly pleased by the fact that he had gotten this thing squeezed out in the night and uh, kind of said to a reporter who had been covering uh, this shoot, he kind of enjoyed sort of sticking it to the studio and the studio bureaucracy, which had decreed that they would have to spend an expensive six days on this thing. So there is an analogy, I suppose, between Eastwood's attitude toward bureaucratic authority, which has never been a happy one, and the attitude of Dirty Harry, involved as he is with a much more uh, deadly and potent bureaucracy. Looking up. Fire chief looking up, his face... <laughs> 
You rotten bastards. Clint was in those days, as compared to more recent days. I think he was a much more bristling kind of a character, a little more easy to anger, a little less patient than he's become. You know, he was not a terribly young man. I mean, he was 41 years old when this picture was released, and I suppose you could even argue that by modern standards, uh, he'd come to stardom fairly late in life. Uh, he was in really his early, mid-30s uh, when he started making uh, the spaghetti westerns that brought him to international fame. Now you know why they call me Dirty Harry. Every dirty job that comes along. That sequence is a sequence that is designed, among other things, to emphasize the routineness of danger in a policeman's life, which is full of boredom and stakeouts that don't amount to anything and all that. This is Inspector 71. Got something for you. Corner Sierra and Texas. The young boy, Negro. What about him? Shot in the face. Blew part of it away. Anybody know who the boy is? His name was Charlie Rust. I'm his mother. And then come to these moments of high drama, high tension, and uh, high anxiety, for that matter. This is, of course, the fulfillment uh, of a threat that um, Scorpio has made. He was going to kill either or both, a black man uh, and or a priest. And uh, this is a young black man that he has gotten rid of. And, uh, of course, here's his M.O., the high-powered rifle shot from a distant rooftop. Welcome to Hummus. Sign blue size uniforms for police departments has to sell these for a living. Well, 458 Magnum, huh? This thing will stop an elephant. Yeah. Apparently, you like a little edge. All I can get. Well, he's no elephant, Harry. He's no animal of any kind. Remember that. Mm -hmm. What you got, Lieutenant? As you know, Chief, the uh, blue flags represent all the units that are going to be on duty by dark tonight. Double shifts and overtime. Just at night time. What we are uh, setting up here is a central sequence uh, in the film. As it turned out to be, probably the most difficult and uh, dangerous sequence uh, in the picture. Something bothering you, Gonzalez? No, no, nothing. Well, speak up. You're among friends here. 
Oh, well, it just seems like such a long shot that he'd come back to the very same roof. I mean, there are a lot of rooftops in uh, San Francisco. Most of them are locked. But this particular one will be open for him. You see, these sick guys have behavior patterns. We know for a fact they robbed the very same store three, four times in a row. This must have been a little super ego or something. Scorpio strikes again. They like that shooting. Now, there's one other reason why he might pick the same rooftop. He's got a very clear view of the St. Peter and Paul's church. And they're having an event tonight. Well, go on. Well, the note. He threatened to kill a Catholic priest or a Negro. The Russell boy was back. He may just figure he owes himself a padre. What we're dealing with here is absolutely the darkest, almost incomprehensible uh, in terms of its lighting uh, sequence in the film. It was a sequence that was difficult for Siegel to set up. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of angles to cover in the sequence and a lot of distances um, that have to be rationalized in film terms. And uh, it led to actually a kind of a Clint becoming impatient on the set with the way things were going, getting kind of gnarly. Siegel saying, hey, come off it. And uh, then, uh, probably unprecedented in cinema history, Clint kind of retreating back to his trailer and then coming back and planting a big kiss on Don Siegel's head and saying, you know, I was wrong and, you know, this is going right and forget it. It's not a kind of gesture that uh, you expect to see between a couple of characters like uh, Eastwood and Siegel. Oh, yeah, and a word about nudity. I find it very interesting the way it's played in these in this movie. I mean, there's nothing sniggering about it. It's sort of something very frank, casual. That's the way it goes in, in the way that naked womanhood is shown in these films.
As you can see, it's a big sequence. It's far ranging, it's far darting, the whole, this whole aspect of the neon sign getting shot up is, is really beautifully done, I think. Um, and the whole air of this sequence of once again being very close to the prey, the quarry, and then just missing him. There is a steady buildup uh, in this movie of frustration, which um, obviously begins to take its toll on Harry. I think I said before, but it's, I think, worth repeating. We are talking about a guy moving from police routine to personal obsession in the way that he deals with crimes. Call an ambulance, will you? Officer Collins never knew what hit him. All right, all right, let's go. Call headquarters. He's loose from North Beach somewhere. Yes, things that that shot to me indicates is there's no attempt at showing the beauties of San Francisco, which is of course one of the most picturesque cities in America. But the way this picture portrays that city flatly, uh, without a lot of glamour in it, actually when they are in glamorous uh, places, they're often at night so you can't see them. It cost the picture something with, certainly with Pauline Kael, who was a San Francisco native, and didn't like to see her native city portrayed in a less than flattering light. And the light of this movie is a very unflattering light. Uh, double crossing San Francisco police made me do this. Now ransom 200,000 and used tens and twenties. One man with yellow bag. Southside Marina, Green East Harbor, 9 p.m. She has oxygen till 3 a.m. tomorrow morning. Red panties and bra, nice tits, mole on left thigh, anything cute, and you will force me to let girl die of slow suffocation. Signed, Scorpio. Anything else in there? Yeah. The mother identified the bra, the hank of hair, and that. The dentist identified that. Said it was pulled out with a pair of pliers. You know she's dead, don't you? All I know is the letter says she'll be alive until 3 a.m. The mayor's out trying to put the money together now. It's a, uh, you can just see in Clint's look. And he's a great, minimal actor. He never gives you more than he needs to give you, but he never gives you less either. You can see what's happening to him, that uh, this case has become a crusade with him, that uh, more than usual, he is willing to bend the rules of police engagement in order to find this killer. No, I'm not sure. 
But those are my orders, all right? No wonder they call him Dirty Harry. Always gets the shit end of the stick. One more word out of you, and you're chopped off at the ankles. Well, let's split the difference. He's not going to have the night off, as you're about to see. Testing one, two, oh. three. What the hell are you yelling for? All you have to do is whisper. All right, Mary had a little lamb. It's fleece was white as snow. Okay, okay, that's better. It's good for two or three blocks, but like in a tunnel, forget it. All right, Sid, what away with you? So, despite the orders from Scorpio, he is going to have backup, and. Uh, that's going to have consequences at a number of levels in the next sequences in the movie. You count it out? Did you count it, Chief? Not my responsibility. Oh, boy. Well, I always knew I'd get rich on the police force. Just make sure nobody takes it away from you. God knows how he'll contact you. He'll probably run you all over town. Hey, just go where you're told, do what you're told. Play it straight down the line, okay? Okay. Nothing cute, nothing fancy. Just pay the ransom money and report back here. Okay. Wouldn't mind if I borrowed a little of your scotch tape, would you? Harry is, in fact, prepared for anything. And what he's doing in this sequence is giving himself some backup on the grounds that his great big magnum would be the first thing, should he have a close encounter with Scorpio, that Scorpio would take from him. The shiv is something that is going to be, proved to be extremely valuable. This sequence, which is, you know, a truly extensive nighttime sequence, is, I think, again, designed to further break down, as if any more breaking down were needed, uh, break down Harry's uh, <laughs> very tentative hold on rules, regulation, order, and so forth. Because what's going to happen is that Scorpio is going to keep uh, Harry moving from telephone box to telephone box to telephone box all over San Francisco, closely followed, of course, by Chico, his uh, partner, Callahan. What are you? Police officer. Hello? Hello? By the time this sequence is finished, Harry will frankly be totally out of control of himself, which I think is important to set up in uh, the context of this movie because if Harry is in fact breaking the law, uh, violating at least four amendments of the Constitution, 
it has to be established that his relationship to the ordinary conduct of law enforcement has been shattered by the events of this evening. He's going to be physically uh, spent and emotionally spent because no one is more aware than Harry that the clock is ticking uh, on the uh, abducted teenager. One of the things that's, to me, very interesting about this film is the kind of energy that Siegel gets into pretty routine shooting. I mean, in other words, there's nothing that we haven't seen in other movies in any of these sequences. But there's a kind of energy in it, a slightly offbeat choice of angles and lenses sometimes um, in the way he sets up the sequences, and it gives a little bit of edge to cliché. I mean, this movie does have its roots in the best part of the B-picture tradition, but uh, Siegel is a very canny operative, and I think particularly true in this sequence. Uh, just the way things move, uh, the way Harry moves in the frame, the way the locations have been chosen and the way the setups have been chosen, keeps mildly be-startling us. It's all just a little bit more interesting than it has any right to be, I suppose.
think this sequence, which is so very one-on-one, -on -one, it's Harry versus Scorpio in a duel, reinforces, to me, the notion of, uh, of Harry being his, his doppelganger. Uh, you know, the notion that there's one authentic psychopath and one guy getting close uh, to the edge, uh, situationally speaking, of psychopathy in this duel. And I think it's pretty darn good. I mean, it's the kind of thing that implicitly sets this movie apart from all kinds of police movies. Interest the park on Lansdale Street. A particularly San Francisco digression, uh, you know, the gay life of the city was already becoming, uh, you know, apparent to people everywhere. And, um, you know, this is... I don't know what to say about it, except that it, it's a persuasive digression and, uh, you know, and a good one. I mean, it's one more obstacle in the path toward this confrontation that uh, is, of course, inevitable.
crazy. Just like a statue. That's right. One wrong move, anything. I don't care. I'll kill you and the girl both. Understand? Yeah. Drop the bag. That, incidentally, is a comment that everyone was going to make about this movie. I mean, the, the infamous, first famous, then infamous Magnum 44. That's a big one. I mean, it is one big uh, sexual object of a gun, shall we say. Um, and, of course, I think it's meant satirically. Um, you know, there's no special reason why Harry needs to carry anything more than the standard-issue thirty-eight caliber police revolver, except for this. He's like a workman who's decided that the tools of his trade, as handed out by his bosses, just don't do the job. It's obvious that he went out and bought his own forty-four Magnum, which is not doing him a lot of good at this particular moment. I like the way Andy Robinson plays the scene. I mean, it's just something childlike in his voice, uh, which, of course, makes him more menacing and more deadly-seeming. Do we understand each other? Don't pass out on me yet. No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Don't pass out on me yet, you rotten oinker. Do we understand each other? If you care what happens to the girl, you better answer me. All right, all right. Now listen to me carefully. I've changed my mind. I'm going to let her die. I just wanted you to know that. Now the childlike gives way to the mad giggles. Great little angle. A great response from uh, Robinson. It's a terrific uh, moment in the movie. And I think what's really good about this sequence as it finally develops after the cat and mouse game has been played out is that it's our first really intimate connection with Scorpio. And we are seeing uh, in the character as he's played this childishness, this... Um, total uh, lack of grown-up criminality. It adds something to the movie, and I'm not sure that it was there uh, in the script alone. There's something going on with this character as he's played that makes him more menacing, more terrifying, more genuinely spooky than uh, perhaps he had any right to be. Well, the problem here, obviously, is that Chico, his partner, has been 
seriously hurt. looks okay, Chief. Yeah, well, he's a pretty tough kid. Harry Callahan, he's right here. He's got two cracked ribs. They want to do some more tests on him in the morning. Well, the son of a bitch really kicked him a couple of buttes, huh? I'm sending him home. Right, Chief. The Chief says beat it, and that's an order. Yeah. Harry, the Chief wants to know if I misunderstood his orders. Meaning, am I just plain stupid, or did I deliberately disobey him? He wants to know what Gonzalez was doing up there. He wants to know why we screwed everything up. Now, what the hell am I going to tell him? I should just start by telling him the truth. Tell him Gonzalez was banging orders from Superior and me. And tell him he didn't know anything about it. And if when this mess is over, he wants my badge, well, he can have that too. Hey, you wouldn't have a belt of booze around here, would you? Wrestler's office. Yeah. Oh, put him on. What is it? It's park emergency. They say they just treated a guy who has a knife wound in the leg. Yeah, doctor. What this guy look like? Long blonde hair, medium build, about 150 pounds, uh, pale complexion. I mean, he didn't give you his name, huh, Doc? No. Nope. I like the obtuseness of the doctor. This is a very well-cast movie, even in these small parts. You know, he's, he's the kind of guy you run into in an emergency room. Uh, obviously a foreigner, obviously a guy who's not uh, a, a Harvard Med graduate. So, again, this is the kind of thing that a policeman like Harry has to deal with all the time. I'm trying to remember... Who he is. When they had football, he used to sell programs at the stadium. I think the groundskeeper lets him live there. There. It is probably worth pointing out that Kizar Stadium is something more than just a locale in this movie. The script had been set originally in New York, but Siegel had done a couple pictures there recently. He was a little tired of it. And so he and Clint started thinking about another location that they might use, another American city. And they were kind of thinking about Seattle uh, and were heading up there to do a location scout. When they both happened accidentally to be watching a... National Football League game on a Sunday afternoon, which happened to be the last game played in antique Kizar Stadium in uh, San Francisco. And they simultaneously had the same idea and actually called one another, I think, while the game was still on to say, hey, Kizar Stadium, it's probably not going to be torn down before we need to shoot. Maybe we can get them to hold back tearing it down until we can shoot. 
and uh, it would be a perfect lair for Scorpio. First of all, of course, the stadium has all kinds of nooks and crannies in it where a creepy guy could live. Um, and uh, more important, as we'll see, it has a fabulous uh, centerpiece for an action sequence, uh, which is, of course, the football field, its very self. But, of course, meantime, uh, Harry has to get himself into Kizar, uh, and he has to see if he can find uh, Scorpio in the bowels of the stadium. footnote here, we do get to see where Scorpio lives in this movie. We never get to see where Harry Callahan lives. I suppose we're left to imagine that it's not a whole lot nicer than uh, Scorpio's pad, but we won't find that out until the next Dirty Harry movie, which, of course, at this point, no one was thinking... Uh, of doing. Uh, certainly nobody thought there would be a total of five Dirty Harry movies before the series ran its course. Ran its course belatedly, in Clint's opinion. I mean, uh, he thought he was pretty much done with the character after three of them, and, uh, you know, allowed the studio to kind of talk him into making some others. Um, it was part of his then very amiable relationship with the studio and the guys who ran it and, uh, you know, kind of trading off, doing, you know, commercial ventures for them in return for the chance to do honky-tonk man for himself. There's a terrific moment coming up here. Wide shots, wide shots, wide shots. Stop! That's a great moment, the flashing on of all these lights in the stadium. You know, where we expect to see, you know, football players entertaining us of a Sunday. We have instead, you know, this deadly confrontation. 
Again, the whining, whimpering, childlike quality of Scorpio when he is cornered, when he is uh, run out of cleverness. Please don't, don't. Let me have a doctor. Let me have a doctor. Please give me the doctor. Don't kill me. The girl, where is she? She tried to kill me. If I tried that, your head would be splattered all over this field. Now, where's the girl? I want I said, where's the girl? I have the right for life. Where's the girl? Now, this is uh, a crucial sequence in determining some of the reception to this movie. I mean, I mean, he is, frankly, torturing this man. On the other hand, um, he is also in hot pursuit of a man who is himself a torturer and a murderer. It is very uh, morally murky territory. That's terrific, you know, fog-shrouded fade-out there. And, of course, Dirty Harry is too late, you know. Yes, he's found out where the girl is. Uh, the girl is no more. Coming now to the crux of the critical attention paid to this movie. Um, obviously, uh, Harry has at Kizar Stadium crossed a line, and he is about to be fully informed of the consequences of that line crossing. Will you come this way, Inspector? May I bring you in a cup of coffee? I'll be done in a minute. Joseph Summer is the uh, district attorney. Another one of those reliable, not entirely famous character actors that people this movie. A very unusual piece of police work. Really amazing. Yeah, well, I had some luck. You're lucky I'm not indicting you for assault with intent to commit murder. What? Where the hell does it say you've got a right to kick down doors, torture suspects, deny medical attention and legal counsel? Where have you been? Does Escobedo ring a bell? Miranda? See, this is the issue that the movie is addressing. And he's consciously doing so. I mean, there's no question in Clint's mind or uh, at the time Don Siegel's mind or my mind looking at the movie later that um, they intended to challenge the liberal pieties of these uh, restrictive laws. The point is, you at this stage, it is somewhat uh, 
situation has been alleviated in the years since. But at that point, if you did not read uh, a criminal his rights and attend to all of his needs, uh, your case could be thrown out of court instantly. And, of course, the evil Scorpio is fully aware of those rights and privileges and has evoked them in this case. And uh, the DA has brought in a judge and a law professor who uh, is about to inform Harry of uh, all the mistakes he made in this case. Now, I think that the movie is to a slight well, to some degree, uh, exaggerating the situation. We do have a policeman in hot pursuit of a suspect. We do have uh, evidence of uh, terrible evil happening. And uh, I am not at all certain that, in point of fact, uh, the police would have so readily released Scorpio on his own recognizance after this incident. I think they might well have held him uh, at least for a few days uh, to make sure that his story was straight and that there was no wiggle room for Harry's, uh, for justifying Harry's behavior. That aside, um, you know, the liberal community, a certain portion of it, really took umbrage at this movie, really felt that it had crossed a line that offended um, very deeply its principles. And Anne-Mary Deacon, what about her rights? I mean, she's raped and left in a hole to die. Who speaks for her? The district attorney's office, if you'll let us. I've got a wife and three kids. I don't want him on the streets any more than you do. Well, he won't be out there long. What is that supposed to mean? I mean, sooner or later he's going to stub his toe and then I'll be right there. This office won't stand for any harassment. You know, you're crazy if you think you've heard the last of this guy. He's going to kill again. How do you know? Because he likes it. That's the point, isn't it? He likes it. Well, um, austerity in this uh, dialogue. Oh, here's another point. The, the belt buckle, the peace symbol, that outraged people at the time who were opposed to this movie. Now, I think uh, it's almost satirical the way it's used in the movie. I think it's part of the irony it's exploring and uh, the irony being that this creep uh, would, of course in San Francisco at that time um, use a peace symbol as a kind of disguise, uh, you know, associate himself with the good folks um, when he's manifestly a bad folk. This is a nice little sequence. Again, the very frank uh, and uncommented upon and really not very sexually uh, stirring nudity of the scene. Again, it, if nothing else, it livens up what could be a kind of a dull passage, you know, which just involves Dirty Harry uh, continually stalking, continually trying to provoke, really, Scorpio, provoke him into an act of arrestable violence.
This moment coming up here is really, truly uh, one of the narrative coups of the movie. Um, even Pauline Kael, in her review, had to admit that um, she hadn't seen anything like it either. Uh, and none of us had. I mean, to my knowledge, in no movie that I am aware of has someone gone to a second party and asked that person to beat him senseless in order to make a case that uh, against police brutality. In other words, he's going to pretend that the beating he's about to be have administered uh, to himself was, in fact, given him by Dirty Harry. Um, it's an amazing sequence, an amazing idea in a movie. Relax. Take it easy. It's gonna be all right. It is, of course, a uh, another frankly brutal sequence. I mean, that is one of the things about Don Siegel and about Clint. Um, you know. They do not blink at uh, violence and brutality when it is requisite to the story. It's what is. There is that kind of realism in their approach to filmmaking. Um, you know, it's not particularly in this instance sadistic. It's just something that has to happen in terms of this story. Sure, you want the rest of it? Every penny's worth. You black son of a bitch. And of course, Scorpio has to go further. He has to take it into the realm of racist affront, which I suppose, in some perverse way, serves his own purposes. He needs to have. Uh, a really authentic beating. This one's on the house. And now, of course, he has all the evidence he thinks he requires to go to the press and uh, uh, claim martyrdom at the hands of the forces of law and order. Why would they do that, sir? Why? Why are they harassing you? I don't know. They tried to frame me with the Deacon girl murder, and now they're trying to murder me, and look at me. Just look at me. I'm supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. Just look Again, the voice that Andy Robinson uses in these sequences is just wonderful. The childlike quality of it, the fraudulent innocence of his uh, voice and manner. That's the rerun from the four o'clock news. Since then, he's given a statement to the Chronicle. And he claims you've been following him. And you beat him up. But what about it, Harry? You want my star? I want an answer. Have you been following that man? Yeah, I've been following him on my own time. And anybody can tell I didn't do that to him. How? Because he looks too damn good, that's how. <laughs> Any more 
Oh, there are us hardy people who really just love Clint in those moments. Uh, you know. They are transgressive, but they are, you know, they are real in some profound and not unintelligent way. Guy makes them at the place I eat all the time. <laughs> Thank you. I've been talking to Bressler about being on permanent with me. So at least you know you get a spot when you get out. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I am coming back, Harry. No, doing a lot of thinking about it. Well, I have a teaching credential, and I figured <laughs> four, you know. Time for therapy. You hang in there now. Bye, honey. See you tomorrow, same time. And here, as we, you know, deal with the recuperating, but uh, now about to leave the force, Chico. Um, we do get a better sense of Harry as a human being, that uh, to a degree, his toughness is an act, uh, or if not an act, a necessity for him. Uh, if he doesn't play the hard ass as he does here, he is... Uh, not going to be able to lead the life he is leading. And, uh, you know, he understands the complaints of Chico's wife. He completely understands it. He understands that there are people who simply cannot do what he does. And uh, he can understand that. And here's a little bit more backstory here. Now we find out why he is so radically alone. I mean, his wife has been senselessly killed in an accident. And that is something that conditions Dirty Harry's psychology. He understands, as a lot of people do not understand, uh, the chanciness of the universe, the fact that evil can visit us without warning, without motivation without any of the rationales that are sometimes uh, placed uh, at evil side. Uh, he understands there is an element of the absurd uh, in the way things can strike us in uh, our lives. And I think that's a huge justification for his anger, uh, for the way he lashes out, and for his obsessive need to restore order in a case where the man he is opposing is a source of total anarchy in his community. What the hell happened to you? My wife's brother. I hit her, so he hit me several times. 569. You're the guy that's been uh, robbed all these times, aren't you? Fourteen times the last three years. Last two times I sent him out of here on platters. Yeah. I'm getting to be a pretty good shot. And I always keep it right here, right where it's headed. <laughs> Please, I scare easy. <laughs> 
cannot stop himself. I mean, that's what's so interesting about this character. Um, there is no control on his behavior, not even the memory of a control. We are leading now to the uh, concluding sequence of the movie. It's maybe worth, uh, you know, noticing here uh, as Scorpio takes over this school bus and leads us all on a wild uh, chase, um, that a couple of other comments from roughly around the time the movie was released and people started talking about it. There was a man named Lawrence Alloway who mounted an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York uh, about violent movies. Um, and uh, he made an interesting point that there has always been in America an official culture and a kind of covert culture, by which he means the culture of people who go to Animal House movies, uh, who get off on uh, violence at the simplest and most primitive level, and, um, you know, makes the point, which was seconded by Henry Louis Gates, then a young uh, scholar, now a very prominent scholar uh, at Harvard, who made the point that the lumpen proles, proletariat, and the postmodern ironess of a different level of culture had joined in celebrating at this point, and it certainly has grown in the years since, had joined in celebrating transgression for its own sake, blood for its own sake, um, you know, a delight in anarchy, a delight in the fact that um, the law could not be enforced as it had been in more traditional America. And there is some truth in that, some notion that, you know, the intellectual community, you know, <laughs> brought up on every kind of transgressive literature and uh, other art forms, and, uh, you know, the animal house crowd, had found a kind of a weird common cause uh, in movies of this sort. Having said movies of this sort, I want to take away uh, the notion movies of this sort. the trouble we don't know yet the jet must be fueled and ready to go in a half an hour the skeleton crew they must be volunteers i think up to a point uh i believe eastwoods and siegel's protestations that you know they were really just making a tougher than usual um maybe smarter than usual cop film. Uh, what they were doing was, uh, I think, probing a little more deeply into the psychology of the dedicated police 
officer and also into the behavior of psychopathic criminals. But I don't think they meant to so self-consciously offend and affront people. The mayor is an interesting character. He really is the ultimate compromising politician. Uh, he's a type that, uh, in real life, Clint was not particularly interested in being with, and uh, certainly Harry Callahan, his doppelganger, is not interested uh, in having any further truck with. So, what we have set up here is a situation in which, to all apparent purposes, Callahan is now out of the picture. Uh, he is not going to be officially involved in the delivery of this money. For all we know, he's uh, gone home and cracked open a couple of brews and uh, seeing if there are any sports on television. Well, of course, we know that's not true. Um, he's the hero of the movie, and he has to decisively intervene in uh, the way the film is worked out. One of the things uh, strikes me uh, and struck me more heavily watching this movie uh, to prepare for this commentary is its pace. Um, I think we've come to think of cop movies, especially in the era of Marty Scorsese, um, as, you know, very tight, tense, quickly cut, high-pressure kinds of movies. This movie, is, in a way, in the way the scenes are laid out, is rather leisurely. It takes its time, it establishes things uh, in the scenes. There's a lot of byplay uh, in this sequence where he's... ...trying to keep the kids uh, under control as he, of course, increasingly loses control. Again, uh, it's a terrific performance by uh, Andy Robinson. I mean, in other words, 
he really creeps right up to the edge of breaking down on camera. I mean, there is uh, a notable lack of control in his portrayal of psychopathy when he's under pressure in particular. And he's under pressure here no less than he was, you know, in Kizar Stadium. So it's a terrific piece of nut job acting by this actor. What should his wondering eyes should appear, but a stark and vengeful figure awaiting him, uh, none other than Dirty Harry Callahan. This is a scene, by the way, that uh, does not involve stunt doubles. I mean, Clint did not think, he thought the camera had to be too close for him to use any kind of a double. So he did his own stunt there uh, and uh, would continue doing that stunt uh, on the top of this uh, school bus. It uh, is not, how to put it, uh, an undangerous uh, piece of activity. But again, you know, there's always something practical about uh, Clint as an actor and uh, as a director. He will do what needs to be done. And in fact, this location is a location he proposed to Siegel. As I said, he's been brought up in the Bay Area, and this gravel pit was a place that uh, he knew from childhood excursions with his parents. It had been there for a long, long time, and he thought it'd be a swell place to stage the concluding confrontation in Dirty Harry. Again, there is, as this portion of the film plays out, there's a good deal of originality in it, too. You know, the, the conveyor belt, which uh, is employed uh, very nicely uh, in the sequence. One of the things the reporter noticed uh, well back in the movie in the jumper suicide sequence is that when it was over, despite all the grappling that had gone up in midair there, that uh, Clint's 
pants were still neatly pressed at the end of the sequence. His jacket was neatly pressed. You know, uh, I don't think that at the end of this sequence we're going to find uh, a terribly neatly pressed Clint Eastwood emerging from it. Now, of course, isn't this typical, you know? Uh, this is a merciless madman. Drop the fucking gun, huh? <laughs> he thinks he's got him. <laughs> That's a pretty great shot. In all movies, the hero has to be not only super cool, but super apt. And uh, I think we can concede that to uh, Clint as Dirty Harry. It's uh, something we expected him to do. And, of course, we expect to find this guy whimpering and acting a coward. And now we're about to have a payoff. I know what you're thinking, punk. A complete repeat, of course, of the scene at the beginning of the movie with the bank robber. Myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? There are no shy little Eastwoodian smiles here. This is all suppressed rage. Well, do you, punk? <laughs> he does keep track of the number of bullets he has fired in the course of a sequence, does he not? That's a nice, nice little minor irony of this film. We're now coming to a pretty famous moment in this movie. Siegel had thought that Clint, out of disgust with everything he's gone through in this film, should, in effect, repeat the action of Gary Cooper in High Noon, where he took off his sheriff's badge and threw it into the dirt. And he thought Clint should do this in this sequence. Clint thought otherwise. He thought he should study it, look at it, and then retain the uh, badge. But at the last minute, Clint changed his mind. Uh, he thought probably Harry had had it with law enforcement in the San Francisco Bay Area. And here we get this great and typical of this movie wide shot. Of course, somehow that badge got retrieved and uh, Harry went on to further adventures. Siegel always said, well, if I'd known he was going to do that, I'd have had three or four backup badges on hand. As it was, he only had the one, so Clint had to make a perfect shot. 
with his uh, tossed away badge there, but it worked out. And uh, that brings us to the end of what I think is not only in and of itself a very fine cop movie, but one of truly historic proportions. I think it changed the way we look at police procedurals, uh, crime movies in general in our era. That's it. I have no more to say.